How many of you guys, when you were growing up, your parents gave you an allowance? Anybody get an allowance when you were growing up? Anybody receive some money from your parents? Handful of you. Some of you too embarrassed to raise your hand. Some of your parents gave you a bunch. Some of your parents gave you nothing. <laughs> well, my allowance growing up was a dollar, dollar a week. Some of it, and I mean, went to the church, went to God. We, I, I, would, I would tithe some of that money. So I'd put a dime in the offering plate. Some of it went in, we had a little savings jar, and some of it went in a little savings jar, and I got to keep the rest of it, 80 cents, 80 cents a week. And, uh, you know, certain expectations were a part of being a part of the family. Uh, my allowance wasn't dependent upon the expectations, but just being a part of the family was what the expectations were about. I had to make the bed, had to help do the bathrooms on Saturdays, had to, uh, uh, you know, take the, the, or sort the laundry or uh, uh, strip the bed and take the sheets down on sheet day and do all, you know, mow the yard, everything that was, was expected. But 80 cents a week, and 80 cents a week to a kid you know, you, you, you have big dreams, right? You see all the commercials and you're thinking, oh, I want that toy and I want that toy. It'd be great. It'd be fantastic. If I could just save up and buy that, you know, Batman action figure or whatever. At 80 cents a week, it takes a while to get there. And uh, I was very impatient and, and, and would want to go and, and blow my 80 cents a week on whatever I could find. 80 cents a week doesn't really buy a whole lot. But uh, uh, I guess it was teaching me patience and saving, right? Well, there was one particular item that I, I really, really wanted growing up. In my house, we weren't allowed to have video games. We, weren't, we didn't have a Nintendo. We didn't have any of that stuff. Some of you were like, well, we didn't even have, you know, it wouldn't even exist when I was a kid. Uh, well, when I was a kid, it did exist. And, and seemingly from my perspective, everybody had one, right? Today, you, you, you parents, your kids may be like, everybody's got a cell phone. And you may be having that discussion over dinner right now. But in my day, it was an, everybody had a Nintendo. We'd go to my friend's house. We'd play Nintendo. I'd come home, beg my parents for a Nintendo. Yeah, they didn't have We'd go at Christmas and hang out at my grandparents' house. And my cousins would bring their Nintendo that they played on the TV they had in the car, which blew my mind at the time. And I would go home and beg. I'd ask for it every Christmas, every birthday. It was number one on the top of the list. I remember sometimes at Christmas, I didn't put anything else because I thought if that's the only thing I put on the list, for sure, I'm going to get it. Nope, didn't happen. And uh, my mom's going to listen to this on the podcast tomorrow, and she's going to tell me how, I trauma, how I've been traumatized because of how they treated me growing up. But that's not the way it was. They knew that if I had, you know, a game system or whatever, I would have dedicated most of my time to that and not spend any time playing outside, not spend any time with friends. It'd be all about the clickety-clickety-click or whatever. And uh, so I took my 80 cents a week and some birthday money, and I began to save. Because I thought, well, if they're not going to do it for me, I'm going to do it for me. And I saved and saved and saved. And those things are expensive. And if you're going off at 80 cents a week, you're not going to get anywhere near it, uh, anywhere, anytime soon. <clears throat> well, there's a store in town that was going out of business. And I remember going to the store with my mom, and I had saved up $43, $43. Bucks. And I was, it was the most money I'd ever had in my life. I was excited. I couldn't believe it. I got $43. And we went to the store, and I'm looking around, and we're walking through the store. And we come across, and this store was closing. And so on an end aisle, you know what I saw for $39.99? A Game Boy. A Game Boy. I've got it right here in my pocket. Anybody remember these? This is the very one. 
$39.99. The store was going out of business. They had to get rid of everything. And, and, and I said, Mom, I want that so bad. I, I've been saving. I got $43. That'll even cover the tax. Just let me buy it. And so at the time, we, don't, we didn't have cell phones. <laughs> and so she said, okay, well, we'll, we'll, um, we'll buy it and uh, uh, go home, and then you'll give me the money. And, and if your dad's cool with it, then we'll make sure we have it. If not, we're going to take it back. And I said, okay. And so we get the Game Boy, and I pay for it, and I just I cradle it, you know, in the box on the way home. This is my, you know, this is my treasure. Uh, it's precious, right? And so we get back to the house, and I'm sitting there at the table with the Game Boy in the box waiting for Dad to get home. He gets home, and, he's, and then we tell him what happened, and he says, yeah, you saved up. I'm proud you saved up for it. You saved up for, you know, it's good to save and to, to particularly save for one particular deal. It teaches you patience, and yeah, go ahead. And so I open the thing. And I'm holding it, you know, I'm rolling it over and I said, oh, look, I need some batteries. You know, everything kid gets needs batteries. He's, so I go over to the battery drawer and pop some batteries in and I'm just looking at it and playing with it, holding it. And I click it on and this one needs new batteries. <laughs> um, and uh, dad says, hey, you got it? What game are you going to play? What game you got? And I said, well... Only had forty-three dollars. I couldn't really, I couldn't afford a game, <laughs> you know. I got the Game Boy, but I couldn't afford a game. And he goes, "Well, what good is it then?" And so I run over to my friend's house across the street, uh, who had a Game Boy, and uh, asked him if I could borrow a game. And he was very stingy. He was willing to give up Tetris for me to borrow for a while till I got a game. And I, I at the time hated Tetris. You know, I wanted something like Mario. I wanted something like NBA Jam. I wanted something that you, you know, had some action to it on the little 8-bit screen or whatever. And uh, so I got to, and I was all about Tetris on the Game Boy I had bought for $43. And I played it day, and I was just all over that thing. Mom and Dad finally had to confiscate the Game Boy because I was spending too much time with the Game Boy. But having the Game Boy, but not having a game, as it was, you know, it was designed to be function with something else to make it work well, to make it work as it was supposed to work. But I didn't have the other thing, and so it, it honestly was a good door jam, right? It just sat there. It, it couldn't work until I had the game that was designed to go with it. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 14, is we as people were designed to go with something. And we're not going to function properly unless we are together and Paul talks about here, as in this series we're, we're beginning today that is going to go for the next month and finish out the book of Romans, Paul finishes out this letter to these Roman Christians talking about practically how Christians are supposed to function in the world with other people, how we're supposed to be together because we are better together. Because if we're separate and we're just sitting there, we're not fulfilling the function that we were designed to f fulfill. We need each other to function properly. And so he writes these last few chapters in the book of Romans talking about how we are better together and what that looks like and how it, sometimes it's messy and it's not easy, but it's necessary. And so in Romans chapter 14, he begins this section about being together. And he starts right off, and what we're going to look at today about Christians being together and what that's supposed to look like. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. 
but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. Now, Paul, he's saying don't judge each other, you know, don't despise each other. He's not casting judgment or, or despising uh, somebody by saying one person's weak and one person's strong. Uh, he's, he's putting labels on something in order to, to describe it to us. He talks about the weak person in this context being someone who has a limitation on their freedom. And he's talking about a strong person as someone who has no limitation on their freedom. And so he gives a demonstration or an illustration if somebody is weak, comes to your body of faith, to, to your church, to your, your gatherings, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. Not to quarrel. Not to feel like you have the ability to pass judgment on their opinions. Not to feel like you have the, the strength of mind and your own arguments played out uh, to quarrel, to uh, uh, argue about opinions about things you may even think you have reasoned out every possibility of what may be described. You feel like uh, if a certain issue comes up or a certain situation or a certain topic that you have thought this out thoroughly, I mean to the, to the max, and you feel like you are the absolute authority on whatever issue it is, and if they bring it up, you're just going to destroy them because you know everything there is to know about that thing. Paul says, no, don't, stop, shut your mouth. It's not worth it. He says, welcome them. Welcome them Welcome them in love, as we saw last week. He's been talking about in the previous section about love. Now he says, welcome them, not to quarrel over opinions. Don't bring them in close so you can punch them in the face. Don't do that. Just leave it alone. What's more important, eternity or you being right? He says, welcome them. Giving that, that example. So one person believes he may eat anything. Another person believes he can eat only vegetables. So let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Despise, to devalue them, to think less of them, because they don't do what this person feels free to do. But on the inverse, let not the one who abstains, the one who chooses not to eat those certain foods, pass judgment come to a conclusion about the one who does eat, because God has welcomed both of them. God welcomed the one guy who has convictions about a certain thing. God welcomed somebody else who has other convictions. God welcomed them both, not so they can be put in a box and fight it out and see who's victorious, but God welcomed them both because he loves them both. He welcomed them both. You see, it's the, it's the very principle we witnessed last week, but Jesus speaks about in Mark chapter 10. What God has joined together, let no man separate. It's true in marriage, but it's also true in the Christian body. God has joined us together to accomplish something fantastic for him. And he's, he's saying, let no one separate it. So not even my opinion about a political topic or my opinion about a theological topic. Unless it has to do with Jesus dying on the cross, it's not worth damaging somebody else's faith over. It's not worth damaging somebody else's walk with Jesus over. If it doesn't point them to Jesus, why am I pointing it out? I made a, it was in our, our small group last week. Um, we're doing a Bible study from Priscilla Shire, and she made this comment uh, that, that brought something out of my mind that was fantastic. Uh, 
um, uh, that how can we have peace of mind when we're too busy giving out pieces of our mind? I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. If we're too busy giving out pieces of our mind, there's not going to be much mind left to have any peace. We've got to have peace. Peace comes from Jesus, not from striking out at everybody else, not from beating everybody else down. But the word choice that Paul uses here in Romans 14 is very interesting to me. Don't despise, don't pass judgment. Don't despise, don't pass judgment. Don't jump to a conclusion about somebody and make a judgment call about them, a snap judgment. Don't despise, don't devalue them. Don't devalue them. When we make a judgment about somebody in that sense, we think we're better than them. We are devaluing their value. We're lowering their value by raising ours, by making a judgment call about that person. But Paul says that God is welcoming. God finds value in them. And so I have to ask myself then the question, is my personal belief that my ability to accurately assess a situation and come to a well-thought-out conclusion worth more, worth more than the value Jesus places in that person? Is it worth more than that? Is it worth devaluing them? Well, in truth, obviously not. I mean, in Jesus, there are no disposable people. No one can be cast off. In Jesus, there are no disposable people. Everyone is, is worth it. Everyone should be welcomed. Everyone should be drawn in, not for a kidney shot, but to, to, to draw each other along in the faith. I mean, if anybody should be questioned about his genuineness of faith, it would have been Paul. Paul, who threw Christians in jail, Paul, who killed Christians, gets saved and immediately walks into the Christian gathering. What do you think that first meeting was like? Paul says, I've been saved. And the Christians say, okay, yeah, I don't think so. I'm, I'm going to stay on this side of the room. Stay out of arm's reach of him. I'll just make sure, the, the, you know, I'll put you closer to Paul if you're slower than me. I'm going to not get close to what's going on here. And so undoubtedly, some of those Christians would have questioned his faithfulness. And here he's writing and saying, I've experienced this. Don't devalue somebody else. You don't know their story. You don't know their journey. Jesus welcomed them. Jesus welcomed me, Paul's own testimony. Welcome anybody and everybody because we never know what God can use, who God can use to do something phenomenal. So don't prejudge them. Don't despise them. Don't devalue them. No one is disposable in the kingdom of God. And Paul straight up asked the question in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, <clears throat> for the Lord is able to make him stand. So he introduces this idea here. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Of another. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Only one's master is authorized to make a determination, a judgment call about a fellow servant. So if we're supposed to be serving Jesus, I should not place myself in mastery over somebody else by judging them, by despising them. He says, and when I do that, I am 
saying, I am Lord over that person because I can judge their situation. Even though them being in the middle of it can't, I can, being on the outside of it looking in and seeing only snippets. I can judge what's going on. I can judge their decision. I can judge their life choices because of where I'm sitting over here, even though they're in the midst of the storm, I can make a judgment call about that. And now we may not verbalize the judgment call and put it out there on Facebook. More often than not, we, we do it in the back of our minds and we think about it. When, when it, again, it's not in the forefront of our minds, but we subconsciously make a, a little judgment call about them. Subconsciously, in the back of our minds, we think about it. I mean, we're wired that way as human beings in our sin to think about each other in a negative light. That's why most of the stories on the news are negative because that's what feeds us and we like it, even if we don't admit it. We like it when people attack each other. We like it when Christians attack each other, when some Christian gets, 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 gets lofted up and then they do something and they get just ripped down and we want to believe the bad stuff. We want to believe it because it makes us feel better about us. Paul says, stop. That's not lifting Jesus at all. <clears throat> Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? He says, Jesus is that guy's master, not me. Jesus is my master, not you. So who am I to pass judgment on a fellow servant? <clears throat> no one has authority to make a judgment call about somebody else, to make a judgment, to make or to despise somebody else. That's Jesus' purview, not mine. So, but in the same way, no one has authority to do that about me because that's Jesus' role, not yours. That's Jesus' role, not yours. Jesus' role, not mine. But when I choose to follow or allow the judgments of somebody else, the opinions of somebody else, to dictate my actions, I'm giving them lordship over my life, giving them mastery over my life. Now, that's not to say God can't speak through people. He absolutely can, and he does all the time. But in directing my decisions, am I allowing that person's opinion of me to direct my decisions? and my actions, and, and, and my words, or am I allowing God speaking through them to direct my actions? Because more often than not, we allow what other people think to direct us, to direct us, to, to direct what we post, to direct what we, how we act, to direct how we act in church. We allow what other people sitting in the room are going to think direct how we worship. <clears throat> and what that ends up doing is, is, who we allow to influence us reveals who we really are serving. Influence reveals service. Who you allow to influence you reveals who you're really serving. If you allow somebody's opinion to shape your character, to shape your decisions, to shape your life, you're allowing that person to have mastery over you. Now, this isn't, a, this isn't giving all you kids, a, you know, right to go home and say, I only answer to Jesus. You have no right over me, parent. No, Jesus said, if you want to live a long life, you will obey your parents. You will honor your father and mother in order for you to live long in the land. You can live long in his land if you don't obey your mother and father, right? <clears throat> but honor your father and mother because he's put them in your life to raise you up and have influence over you to speak through them into you. But who we allow to influence us reveals who we serve. Who or what we allow to influence us reveals who we're serving. <clears throat> Where we direct our uh, uh, 
guidance from shows who we are serving. And Paul says, I'm not to pass judgment on the servant of another because if they're serving Jesus, who am I to make the judgment call? That's on Jesus, not me. That's on Jesus, not me. Jesus is that person's master, not me. Verse 5, he gives us a great example here. One person esteems one day better than another, while another person esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to all. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to all. So what is Paul talking about? He's talking about some people think some days are more important than others. Some holidays are more important than just a regular day. Some days of the week are more important than other days. He, he, he straight up says it in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. A Sabbath. And now people who are reading this, a bunch of whom were Jews who became Christians, get a, you know, they get that weird feeling in their back that grows up to their head. Like, oh, he's talking about the Sabbath now. Sabbath is one of those sacred cows you don't go near. You don't slaughter that guy. You don't eat the meat from that one. You just leave that sacred cow alone and it gets all, you know, funky over there in the corner. You don't go near that one. But Paul says it. It's, he says there's some who, who honor the Sabbath in a certain way and think of the Sabbath in a certain way, and there's some who don't. But who are we to pass judgment on one or the other? I mean, Jesus said it as well. He said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus, Son of God. He created the Sabbath. The Sabbath is an idea, if you're not familiar, uh, from the very beginning when God created the world. Genesis uh, 1 and 2, right in there in the beginning. When God created the world, he rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath was created for rest. And Jesus explained it this way. He says, the Sabbath was created for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. The idea of the Sabbath, of rest, is so that we don't kill ourselves, so that we don't die. He says, we're supposed to be resting at some point. And so he designed the seven-day week so that we could rest at one point during that seven-day week and not be exhausted and be wasteful in our job, in our families, if we don't rest. We all need rest. And so God designed it that way for our benefit. And so Jesus said, take the rest. I'm giving it to you. Take it. Now, Paul's explaining. So if some people take the rest, and in the Sabbath, in the rest, you're supposed to be worshiping God for his provision, for his care for you. Uh, uh, worshiping God, praising God in the rest, in the refreshment. And Paul says, so if, if somebody does that, great, fantastic. But if somebody doesn't, don't let those who do look down on the one who doesn't. He says, because that doesn't point anybody to Jesus. He says, stop judging each other based upon that. If we're all pursuing Jesus, uh, then, then what does that particular issue matter? And he talks about Sabbath here very explicitly because he wants to raise everyone's attention. It's a very controversial issue in that day and time to, to mention something like this in a Jewish setting where a lot of Jews would have been in the room. Because he wants to get everyone's attention. And so he, so he throws it out there, this controversial subject of the Sabbath. Because ultimately, a lot of the people who are observing the Sabbath here in this context were worshiping the Sabbath and not worshiping Jesus. And so Paul throws it out there to really 
light a, a, a fire under the elephant in the room. And he says, so here's the issue. Some people do it this way. Some people do it that way. This observing the Sabbath. This personal conviction about a particular day of the week. So don't look down on somebody because they don't. And don't look down on somebody because they do. He says, stop with the quarreling. Stop with the judgments in the back of your mind. Leave it alone. And that resonates still today. Still today. There's even been laws in our country that, uh, you know, uh, we as Christians have taken the Sabbath day, which originally was meant for Saturday, and we have applied it to Sunday. And it, 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 it became a part of our culture so that you, uh, certain stores were shut down on Sundays in the past and certain things. Some people uh, uh, would look down on people who, had to, who, who chose to work on Sunday, and yet those very same people would go to the restaurant and pay money to have people come and work for them on Sunday, and kind of the hypocrisy was revealed in that. But uh, a Sabbath day isn't tied to a particular day of the week. Sabbath is a principle that was introduced for us to rest and worship. God gave it to us as a gift. But your Sabbath may be a Sunday. It may be. Some of you may Sabbath on Sunday. Sabbath for me is not Sunday. It's not. It's not. And any preacher who will ever tell you they take Sabbath on a Sunday is a liar. <laughs> they're, they're straight up lying. They, I mean, they just come up here and they'll say, Sunday's a Sabbath. They're lying to themselves and you. Sabbath for a preacher cannot be Sunday. It can't. You know, I get up here and, and we do some things, get some technical stuff going on. Inevitably, there'll be some technical thing that'll mess up. Can I get a witness from the sound booth? Amen. Something will happen. And uh, you got to fix the something that'll happen. And, uh, I, you know, we get to the service and get going in the service and somebody will make a comment and that sticks in your head. And you got to come up here and procre- proclaim the word. And, and what preaching is like, uh, I tried to explain it a few weeks ago to somebody. You, you can't explain it unless you do it. It's like you come up here and you give all of this spiritual energy and you just throw it onto everybody in the room, and then when I get home, after we get small groups and get the kids fed and get rested, I just collapse on the couch and, like, don't want to move. Like, I've just given up all this energy, and I just can't function for a while. It's like, I mean, God gives other guys other more grace. Uh, he's given me particular special grace in this mo- season for this particular issue, but other guys have more grace when they preach more services. But th- I give everything I got, and I go home and just collapse, and I'm just done. And because of that, I mean, Sundays are fantastic, and I love them, and expounding on the word, and ministering, and seeing God move in the lives of people, it's exhilarating and exciting, but at the same time, it's exhausting. So Sundays aren't Sabbath for me. They're not. Right now, in this season, Saturday is Sabbath for me. Now, every week, I don't do the Sabbath. I, I, I don't rest every week, which is on me, and that's bad for me, I can always tell the week following when I don't take a Sabbath and don't rest. The week after is always worse. <laughs> it's all every time. Every time it's worse. Because God knew what he was doing when he designed us, right? He knew what he was doing, so he designed the Sabbath to be built in and necessarily taken. And so should you look down on me because Sunday's not Sabbath? Some of you are already th- judging me because of it. Same ones of you are judging me because I'm wearing sneakers right now. 
You're already thinking, oh, he doesn't Sabbath on Sunday. He's not holy. Keep the Sabbath day holy. That's in the Old Testament. It's written on the commandments in the Ark of the Covenant sitting in the warehouse somewhere in America. It's, 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 it's there in our minds. But the Sabbath isn't a day. So should I look down on you or jealous of you because you Sabbath on Sunday? No. That's the whole point of what Paul's saying. He says, the certain convictions and the certain things that we do, as he says there in that particular passage we just read, verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And while he, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. It's in how you do what you do. As long as it's not sin, how you do what you do is, is the issue here. Honoring God, giving thanks to God. Honoring the Lord is often in the directional motivation of the mundane, the everyday, the usual, the commonplace, the things that we do all of the time. Directional motivation. Am I motivated by the Lord in what I do on the Sabbath? And am I motivated by the Lord in what I choose to eat or what I choose not to eat? Am I motivated by the Lord in the decisions that I make. And if I am, then I'm honoring him and I can give thanks to him because of his special provision in those moments. And so if I'm honoring the Lord and I choose to allow him directionally this way to motivate me instead of directionally this way motivating me, but allowing him to motivate me in the everyday, commonplace, mundane actions, I can honor him in every moment. I can worship him while I empty the dishwasher even though my kids do it now. So I thank God for kids. They can empty the dishwasher. Honor the Lord in that. Honoring the Lord is often in the directional motivation of the mundane. Now look where Paul goes with this in verse 7. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Now, if you've been paying attention here, walking through the scripture, Paul gives a, a spiritual principle, gives an illustration, gives a spiritual principle, gives an illustration, and then he gives this little, these phrases here in 7, 8, and 9, verses 7, 8, 9, that seem kind of out of place, but they're not really out of place. None of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. We do not live accountable to ourselves. We do not die accountable to ourselves. We're accountable to God. We're accountable to God, both in life and in death, which is very important, the foundation of what he says next. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will confess to God, quoting Isaiah 45. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We are all accountable to God just the same. We're accountable to God just the same. Not to anyone else, not even to ourselves. We're accountable to God. And Paul talks about this again in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I, what he says here is so phenomenal in, in translating what he has, has written here and interpreting what he said here in Romans 14. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Do I, did I put that on the screen, Micah? Okay, good. 1 Corinthians 4. 
But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, this is phenomenal here. With me, it is a very small thing that I'm judged by you or any human court. He says, if you judge me, make a, make a judgment about me, if you despise me, it's a little deal. It's a small thing. It's no big deal. Or even if a human court says something about me. That, remember, this is Paul who will end up being beheaded because of a sentence handed down by a human court. He says, even if a human court makes a judgment about me, that's a small thing. Because ultimately, they're not my judge. You're not my judge. He says, that's a small issue. And then he says this, and this really resonated with me. He says, I don't even judge myself. Because look at what he says in verse 4. I am not aware of anything against myself. He says, if I judge me, I'm innocent. If I'm my own judge, I'm good. I mean, I don't care what you say or what the court says. If I am my judge, then we are good to go. I am in heaven, and this is fantastic. But Paul says, I don't judge myself because I'm a poor judge of myself. I look in the mirror and see greatness. And he says, but that's not the way it is. If I look at me and I think I'm innocent, that doesn't mean I'm innocent. That doesn't mean I'm acquitted. That doesn't mean I'm let off. I can only find innocence through God's forgiveness, through Jesus' death and resurrection. I'm not accountable to myself. So when I choose to judge somebody else or despise somebody else because of their life decisions, if I even choose to judge myself, whether innocent or guilty of a particular issue, if I choose judgment in that moment, what I'm doing is I am assuming God's role. I am sitting in God's chair of judgment and declaring judgment on whomever and whatever of anybody else or even myself. And I am not qualified to be a judge. I may feel qualified because of all the judgments I'm constantly passing in my brain, because of the news feed I see, I instantly pass judgment and thumb past it. Because of all of this, I feel like I, can, like I have the authority to do this. But in reality, I'm not qualified to pass judgment on anybody. About anything. About a life choice that you've made. About how you raise your kids. About the, the, the kind of shoes you wore. About how you mow your yard or don't mow your yard. I am not qualified to make that call. The only one qualified to make a judgment call about anybody is Jesus. And so when I choose, well, and that person did so, I cannot believe they did this. And then I share that with a friend, hey, can you believe? Or even share that with a friend in a, as a prayer request, man, you need to pray for so-and-so because you will not believe what they did. What I'm doing is not only making a judgment call about that, but when I share that with somebody else, whether in conversation or in quote-unquote prayer request, that's gossip. So that's double sin, right? I'm judging and gossiping, and then I'm causing that person to sin because of now they're judging about that person, so I'm on triple sin territory now. All because I refuse to give God the authority in that situation that he already had, but I chose to take on his role for me and issue that judgment. I'm belittling them, thinking less of them, devaluing them. But in the same vein, no one else is qualified to judge you except the one who created you. 
Now, I've handed out some bags to some people. Now, if those people get up and start passing those things out that are in those bags, pass them out. I know how, how many are in those bags, all right? They're passing out some quarters. I know how many are in each of those bags. Everybody in the room gets a quarter, gets a quarter. As a kid growing up, especially when you got 80 cents a week, right, a quarter was like gold. You know, you'd get a penny, think, oh, penny's not much. Get that nickel, nickel's bigger than a penny, so that's maybe, but then you get the dime. I never understood why the dime is smaller than a nickel. I mean, I'm sure some of you know, or you can Google it later, but, but when you got a quarter, I mean, that was the, I mean, man, that was it. That was, it had greater value than any of those other things. You know, you had a quarter, and it was, it was great, and it was worth more than that. You could assemble the quarters, and you could get so much for, for, for what you had. But as they pass out these quarters, I want you to look at them. Turn it over, look at it, look at the back, look at the front. Some of you may have older quarters that have, uh, if I remember right, an eagle on one side and George Washington on the other. Some of you may have ones since the 90s, and they all have state um, symbols on them. Here, I've got, what do I have here, Minnesota and North Dakota. Uh, or maybe, maybe you started collecting them, right, and trying to get all the states in the first set from the 90s, and then the second set that they put out recently, trying to get both sets of all 50 states. But you got a quarter. Everybody got one? Anybody not have a quarter? Hold the quarter up to your eye so you can see it from the side. And all you people who passed them out, you can have one quarter. I'm looking here at the front row. <laughs> Look at it from the side. What do you see? You see little ridges, right? Little tiny mountains and valleys. But from the side there, just seeing the side, looking closely at those little ridges, maybe yours is dirtier than somebody else's and you don't see as many ridges. You can't determine its value based upon the side view. Hold it up next to somebody's quarter next to you. If you, you know, those quarters next to each other. From the perspective of another quarter, all it can see are the ridges. All that are perceivable are the mountains and valleys. The, the value of the coin can only be determined from above, from above. You can only then see what it is, see how much it's worth, see the true value. To look at it from the same height, from the same level, like if I were to put them both of these quarters I got in my hand on this little table here, from the same height, it cannot be determined the value of another quarter. You have to be at a different level in order to determine the value held therein. Now, being able to perceive the value doesn't change the value. The value's there whether it can be seen or not. The value's there whether it can be seen or not. And all, the only one then who can judge and determine the value is something that is not on the same level as the thing itself. And that is true of us in every way, in every capacity. We do not have the, the level, the depth, the height to be able to pass judgment on the value of somebody else. We don't. We, we, it's not within us to be able to function that way. We are not qualified. We are not exalted enough. Only Jesus, only God can do that. And so in that mindset, I then cannot be devalued. 
I cannot be belittled because my value is determined by my Savior. My value is determined by my Savior, by my Maker, not by somebody else's opinion, not by somebody else's thought process. My value is not determined by what somebody said back when I was a kid. My value is not determined by what my employer says. My value is not determined by what the court in Sevier County says about me. My value is not determined by what somebody says about my shoes, by what somebody says about my car, by what somebody says about the shape of my clothes. My value is not determined by my bank account. My value is determined by my savior. Period. End of sentence. Nothing else can determine your value. And maybe right now in this room, there's some of you who maybe have never heard that you are valuable. You're valuable. Maybe all you have ever heard, screamed at you, yelled at you, is the opposite of that. Is the opposite of that. Belittling words, discouraging words, words that rip apart at your heart. And what Jesus screams from Scripture, what Paul writes on this page, is that you are valuable to Jesus. And no one else can take that away. No one else can determine your value except Jesus. No one. No one. No matter what somebody said to you last night or texted you, and you keep going back and looking at that text, and it rips a part of your soul every time you see it, what you need to do is swipe to the left and delete the conversation. Because they don't determine your value. Jesus does. Jesus does. And your value is determined by him whether you look to him for your value or not. He finds value in you so much that he came and died for you. So all your sins would be forgiven. And then he rose from the dead so that you can live after you die. You nobody know anybody else who did that? I don't. He determines my value, nobody else. He determines my value, no other organization, no other government. He determines my value. Not not even a decision I made in my past that everyone has labeled me with doesn't determine my value. Jesus does. Your value is determined by Jesus. And he deems every single one of you valuable. In his eyes. And that's all that matters. You 